Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How did Trotsky explain the rise of Stalinism? The Russian Revolution began as a mass movement with democratic control of society by the workers and poor, but it ended as a brutal police state which collapsed under its own inefficiency. What caused this complete reversal? Do revolutions inevitably end in treacherous dictatorship? Was the Soviet bureaucracy the same as a capitalist class? What are a degenerated workers' state and a deformed workers' state? And what can it all tell us about fighting for socialism today? This episode of Socialism looks at the revolution betrayed. Trotsky on Stalinism and the degenerated workers' state. So we've talked a lot so far in this series on Trotsky and Trotskyism, on the Russian Revolution, but it's no secret that that revolution tragically degenerated into the nightmare of Stalinism. This episode, we're going to be here with Claire Doyle. Hello, Claire. Hello. From the Committee for a Workers' International to discuss Trotsky versus Stalinism and the degenerated workers' state. Now, I know, Claire, that you've been a lifelong fighter for socialism, joining the militant tendency in 1964 when that paper, The Militant, was first published, and working as a full-time revolutionary organiser when you attended the founding conference of the Committee for a Workers' International 10 years later in 1974. But I think there might be a particular reason You were asked to write the chapter on Stalin and Stalinism for the CWI's new book on Trotsky. What is that? Well, I not only had the privilege of visiting and living in the city where the successful socialist revolution was carried through in October 1917, but I also lived there and I saw the horrible distortions of socialism that a degenerated worker's state under Stalin had brought about. And I did visit briefly in 1966, which was only just over 10 years after Khrushchev had actually denounced Stalin or revealed all the crimes of Stalin. But still, every minute of the day, we were being followed and people were being arrested and we heard about horrific harassment and punishment of anyone who just raised their voice against the system, let alone mentioned the name of Trotsky, the co-leader with Lenin, of the Great October Revolution, which they still referred to, but they never referred to Trotsky. But the officials were still basing their sort of legitimacy on the Russian Revolution. But as the country opened up under Gorbachev's policy of perestroika, I was able to visit there on behalf of the CWI to try and gauge what the likely perspective for the country was in that tumultuous time, the end of the 80s, And we were trying to reach workers to see what they were thinking and feeling and doing about the situation and whether a political revolution against the massive bureaucracy that was still leeching off the backs of the massive working class, whether that was still possible, you know, in the USSR. Now, Trotsky is well known for being the chief opponent of Joseph Stalin and the degeneration of the Russian Revolution. But there are some, mainly capitalist commentators, actually, who try to draw a straight line from Lenin to Stalin and say that Lenin and Stalin had the same politics, that Lenin was this bureaucratic dictator, the same as Stalin. It's completely ahistorical, of course. The structures beneath them were completely different. But did Lenin have an idea of what Stalin represented before he died in 1924? Lenin did, actually. And, of course, any evidence of that was suppressed by Stalin himself. But when he was ill... 
Lenin dictated a last will and testament. And he also made many comments about the dangers that he could see coming from Stalin, who was secretary of the party, but he was surrounding himself with people who weren't tested Bolsheviks. I mean, even Stalin himself had been a minor player before the year of 1917. He came from Georgia, where he was you know, a relatively unknown Bolshevik fighter. But because the revolution was isolated and it hadn't spread and it was very difficult to try to build socialism in one country, in fact impossible, but it meant that the person who advocated it, Stalin himself, was getting more and more power, surrounding himself with people who were more and more appropriate for carrying through the political counter-revolution, which he did. And actually Lenin's wife, even after he'd died, said to Trotsky that she imagined that if Lenin hadn't died in 1924, very soon he would have been in one of Stalin's jails. So you cannot possibly say the policy of the Bolsheviks and the ideas, you know, and the programme that the Bolsheviks had set out to carry through. There is also a suggestion that maybe Trotsky himself was at the head of the Red Army and he'd been fighting the civil war against the armies of intervention from imperialism, that didn't he have enough power to actually take over? Good question. Stop Stalin. When Lenin died. Yeah. But he hesitated because he knew that the social basis wasn't there, the political basis wasn't there. And if he came into the leadership of the party on the basis of his position in the army, it would not have been in the express interests of the people. It would not have meant that there was then workers' democracy and workers' management in society. A lot of other things would have had to happen. So just him even coming to the head of the government at that time would have been full of more and more complications and problems. When you say that there wasn't a social basis for it, you'd had problems like the killing of many of the best Bolshevik workers in the course of the Civil War, a massive disorganisation of industry in an already economically backward country, the fact the revolution had become isolated temporarily due to the failure of revolutions in more advanced capitalist countries in Europe. There was a kind of dejection and demoralisation. You would have ended up creating a different kind of bureaucracy. Is that what you're saying? It would have been extremely difficult, and Trotsky's main preoccupation was how to get the revolution to develop in other countries and come to the rescue of the Russian Revolution, really, to have the advanced technique, to have the experience of workers who've been involved in trade unions and in a form of workers' control even under capitalism in some of the advanced capitalist countries, and he felt that that was the main role that he could play because he tried to do it. And they tried to develop a clear opposition with the clear ideas of workers' democracy as an alternative to Stalinism, but they were wiped out before Trotsky was wiped out. Trotsky was actually writing a biography of Stalin when he was murdered by the agent of Stalin, Rosner, and he'd already gone into a lot of these issues that we've been discussing here but you could see why Stalin actually wanted to finish this arch-enemy of his, wanted to finish him off in the most brutal manner, which we're remembering 80 years on. Now, the conflict of politics and ideas between Stalin and Trotsky is quite often painted as a dispute between rival political leaders, and that's that. 
but the CWI and Trotsky himself doesn't think that that's really what was going on. It was much more complicated than that. So what actually led to the rise of Stalin and Stalinism? Is it the case that automatically revolutions end up going in the direction of dictatorship? Absolutely not, no. I mean, I think we've explained time and again that it was the undeveloped, we don't like to use the word backward, but the undeveloped nature of the Russian economy in a vast area of the Russian Empire, which meant that although the chain of capitalism broke at its weakest link in Russia, it couldn't develop the economy sufficiently to progress towards socialism, let alone communism, without its integration with other economies. And by the time the economy in the Soviet Union was developing at a rapid rate, the working class had been excluded. So it was sort of a matter of timing and historical development, which won't actually be repeated. I mean, that kind of situation won't exist again because so many countries are so much more developed and, you know, the revolution would not be isolated. I mean, I'm tempted to talk about France because I remember studying in great depth before doing a book on the general strike in 1968. But we said then that unlike the way that the Russian revolution was isolated, a successful workers' revolution in France with an appeal to the workers of the surrounding countries in Europe to do the same thing that they were doing, it would have spread like wildfire. And, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here discussing history. We would be building a new society. <laughs> so you talk about the undeveloped nature of the economy in the Russian Empire, and listeners will recall from an earlier episode in this series on the permanent revolution why it was that the capitalists and landlords in Russia were unable to fully develop that economy. It's worth listening to that podcast if you haven't. But as a result of that and the imperialist wars with Japan and then the First World War, the War of Intervention, the Russian Civil War, where capitalist armies from various different countries around Europe combined with reactionary forces in Russia to try to crush the revolution, this led to massive destruction as well. And this incredibly low level, therefore, for the development of the economy, the organisation of the economy, which the worker state was facing up to, Trotsky writes about this, doesn't he, in The Revolution Betrayed, and says that where there is enough goods in a store, purchasers can come and go as they please. When there's not enough, a line forms. When the line is very long, it's necessary to appoint a policeman to oversee it. And that is the starting point of the power of the Soviet bureaucracy. So was it this scarcity then that led to the rise of Stalinism? Yes, I think I've said so in the chapter on Stalin and Stalinism in the book. Obviously, that is the famous analogy that we quote. And it is the basis of a bureaucracy. If there's not enough to go around, because socialism has to be based on plenty you know, enough to go around so that there's not a struggle between different sectors in society or even between workers, you know, to try and have the basics. I mean, communism is on the basis of superabundance. But where there is shortage, of course, the state can rise above society. Lenin spoke about the forces of the state needing to be elected and subject to recall and so on. But Stalin's police and army were there to do his bidding, and if they were policing the queues and the shortages, of course, they would make sure that they had an extra part of the surplus, which is 
the basis of this bloated bureaucracy that came to dominate society and leech off the worker's state, the degenerated worker's state. So as you've explained, Lenin saw the early stages of this process before his death and he started talking about the Soviet Union as a worker state with bureaucratic deformations and he formed a bloc with Trotsky against Stalin and the growing bureaucracy to try and fight for restoring workers' democracy, to try and hold back that counter-revolutionary tide until, as you put it, the Russian Revolution could be rescued by more advanced capitalist countries going over to revolution, the workers coming to power there and bringing all their resources and abilities to assist Russia. But Trotsky then talked about when he's analysing the Russian Revolution and what happened to it, a degenerated worker state. So what did Trotsky mean by a degenerated worker state? Well, he meant a situation where the workers had carried through a revolution where, although they didn't do it immediately the day after the revolution, Months later, they carried through the nationalisation of all the, you know, what we call commanding heights of the economies and the banks, industry and land, actually, which would form the basis of a worker state in terms of the workers being the dominant class in society and having their representatives elected, asserting control within the workplace and within society through Soviets, through you know, elected representative committees in a factory, neighbourhood, city-wide, regional and national level. That's the way it would build up. And that's why we still advocate that in any revolution, actually, that that should be the way that the organs of struggle can become the organs of workers' democratic rule, and that would be a workers' state run by the workers for the workers and workers pushing to spread the revolution throughout neighbouring countries and throughout the world. That would be their foreign policy as well, to spread revolution. But a degenerated workers' state... Well, actually, Russia was probably the only degenerated worker state ever, or the USSR became a degenerated worker state because it was the only state where a workers' revolution has been carried right through to a conclusion so far. We hope it's not going to be the last. But then because of all the reasons which Trotsky explained, the shortages, the failure of the revolution to spread to other countries, it became... Well, the elements of democracy were undermined, were actually crushed, even deliberately crushed, by Stalin and his clique when they managed to take over in society after Lenin's death. So you talk about Russia as the only degenerated worker state. So at the beginning, not only did they carry through the social revolution of booting out the capitalists and bringing the commanding heights of the economy into the control of the working class, and actually of society as a whole, rather than competing individual capitalists. But also there was democratic workers' control through these organs, the Soviets, so the working class and wider society were in control of that economy and of society more generally. But isn't it the case that the other so-called socialist or communist countries, which at a certain point in the 20th century controlled one-third of humanity, that they were basically on the same model? So what do we call them if they're not degenerated workers' states? Well, they're not on the same model, really, because they never had the involvement of workers in carrying through the revolution, you know, electing their representatives to control within the workplaces and within society. It was as early as in the 20s 
even when Trotsky was still writing about it, and when the revolutionaries in Russia were hoping that the Chinese revolution would be successful in terms of bringing to power this was in the 1920s. a workers' government. Yeah. This was in 1926 and 27, when there were wrong policies on the part of the Communist Party, alliance with the nationalists, the Kuomintang, and really the pushing out of workers from the whole process. So the workers were not involved in the revolution. They weren't able to carry it through to a conclusion. And what actually happened in China after the long march of Mao and the Second World War was that imperialism was pushed out, Japanese imperialism, and Western imperialism was not in a position to, didn't want to, go in to China to save what there was of capitalism in China. So Mao was able to come to power at the head of a peasant army, actually, without the involvement of the working class, but carried through the complete nationalisation of land and industry and banking. But it wasn't with the participation of the workers. In fact, it was against the participation of the workers and with the repression of Trotskyists who were active in China. And so it was deformed from the very beginning and right up to recent history in China, now that the regime is trying to carry through this transition to a market economy, but it's been a long time stuck in a really state capitalist system for you know, different historic reasons now. And in other countries like in Eastern Europe, after the war, the regimes there, the capitalist regimes, were effete, you know, too weak, really, to maintain their control in society. And the Soviet army was in the countries of Eastern Europe, was able to bring about, but you could say to impose, governments which called themselves workers' governments, socialist governments, but where there was no participation of the workers and the ordinary people in the decision-making, either in the workplace or in society, and it was a complete distortion of communism. So they were deformed from the beginning. There were times when workers tried to throw off the bureaucracy in the countries of Eastern Europe, in East Germany even, and in Poland, and especially in Hungary in 1956. But the tanks from the Soviet Union, so-called Soviet Union, were sent in to crush the revolution. I know hundreds, if not thousands, were killed, and that's another whole history. <laughs> so, as opposed to a revolution which had ended capitalism and had installed workers in control of the new society, which then degenerated so that while capitalism for a long time was not restored, the workers were no longer in control of that society. That was a degenerated worker state in Russia. As compared to that, the workers had never been in control in these new planned economies. And so these were deformed worker states. In that, in a certain sense, they rested on the working class and carried out some reforms which benefited economically the working class up to a point, but there was never any working class control over them. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and as part of this process of political degeneration, there was also a political degeneration of the ideas of how to carry through revolutions from Stalin, wasn't there? So there was the rejection of Trotsky's permanent revolution, which actually was just the expression of the genuine ideas of Marx, Engels and Lenin in favour of socialism in one country. But there was also a certain return to the Menshevik idea of stagism, of a stages theory. That's, is that right? Yes. I mean, Stalin had the idea when he was in Russia, actually, in Petrograd in 1917, and Lenin wasn't there. 
Stalin had the idea that, well, we carried through the February Revolution and it'll be some time before we carry through a revolution against capitalism, a socialist revolution. Whereas, you know, Lenin famously arrived at the Finland station and spoke in a number of places in Petrograd saying, no, we have to carry this revolution forward. It's a permanent revolution. And in expressing this idea, which was crucial to be able to carry through the successful revolution in October, he was actually expressing the same ideas that Trotsky had expressed many years before with his idea about permanent revolution. And it's an idea which is absolutely essential for carrying through revolutions today, particularly in countries that are not as industrialized or whether there's still some feudal relations and landowners but I think there's another chapter on that in uh, this book. There is indeed but the point is that even before the political degeneration of the Soviet Union itself there was this conflict of ideas at the top of the Bolshevik party between some of the Bolshevik leaders including Stalin and Lenin who corrected their line in 1917. So you say that Trotsky explained how Stalin's idea that the revolution should be carried through in stages so first of all, a kind of capitalist democratic revolution and then a workers' socialist revolution at some future time, that that would have been fatal for the Russian Revolution. And it was only Lenin's return from exile in April of 1917 that meant the carrying through of the socialist revolution. Did Stalin come back to this mistaken idea in relation to revolutions elsewhere? He came back to that idea, actually. In the same year as Lenin died... In 1924, Stalin actually switched from agreeing with the idea that the revolution needed to be spread to other countries to develop the socialist revolution internationally to saying that socialism could be built in one country and that workers don't need to set out to carry through a socialist revolution, but they can begin, you know, with getting rid of feudalism and so on. That's probably gone into in another chapter dealing with permanent revolution. But he advocated building socialism in one country and actually, through the international, worked against the building of socialism in other countries. And within Russia or the USSR, it really meant replacing workers' democracy through the workers' Soviets to the establishment of control from above, from the bureaucracy, who ruled in the name of the working class but excluded the working class from all decision-making in the workplace and in society. What do you regard as perhaps the most valuable of Trotsky's writings in relation to Stalinism? Well, Trotsky's book that he wrote in 1936 when he was in exile in Norway, called Revolution Betrayed, Mm. goes into great depth about the nature of what he called proletarian bonapartism. It's the idea of a Thermidorian sort of counter-revolution, a political counter-revolution. Could you just explain what was meant by Thermidor? Yes, a political counter-revolution when a small clique takes control of the new society or the new situation, as it did in the French Revolution, but doesn't reverse the actual social gains of the revolution. Mm-hmm. It moves against the original leaders of the revolution but doesn't change the actual social nature of that revolution. So in France, it was the bourgeois revolution that was carried through, even though there was a reaction at the top of society. And he drew that analogy for the Soviet Union, where Stalin and his clique, the clique around him, actually really usurped power, and they suppressed the actual leaders of the Bolshevik revolution, even the leaders of the Bolshevik party, 
were pretty well annihilated, apart from those who colluded with him in this real... It was a political counter-revolution. They took power into their hands, this clique which became a massive privileged bureaucracy and which eliminated the elements of workers' democracy and control in society. So the social revolution of ousting the capitalists, taking the economy into, in effect, public ownership with a plan for its development, that was retained, but this political counter-revolution was about how it was controlled. Is that right? Yes. On the basis, however, of state ownership and planning, the economy of the Soviet Union still went ahead far faster than in capitalist countries. So what was wrong? What was wrong? Well, there was a huge bloated bureaucracy, you know, leeching off the workers' state, what Trotsky called a degenerated workers' state. And they weren't allowing the ideas of workers to be expressed from below, either expressed verbally or through their committees and workers' control. And so they were doing all sorts of things inefficiently, clumsily, and not allowing the oxygen that Trotsky talked about, the oxygen to flow within the body of the economy and society. So this is one of the problems which capitalist economists identify, isn't it? Neoliberal economists like Hayek, who talks about the local knowledge problem, how could a central bureaucracy possibly know all the needs of all the individual complicated local areas? But of course, when the economy is democratically controlled and planned at every level, that information flows freely. It's just a question of a dictatorial bureaucracy trying to plan everything from the centre. That was the problem with the economy, is that right? It was, and they would zigzag from centralisation to decentralisation. They carried through forced collectivisation, originally trying to give more power, more freedom to the peasantry and then clamping down on them and forcing through collectivisation, a policy which meant millions actually died. Millions through starvation and others through persecution. And it wasn't just persecution of society at large, there was specifically mass purges within the Bolshevik party itself, from the top to the bottom and of the army, and anyone who voiced in the end, the slightest criticism of Stalin. Millions were murdered not just through policy mistakes, but also directly through those political purges. So what was Stalin so afraid of? Well, Stalin's purges do mark one of the most bloody periods outside of war and civil war, the most bloody periods in history. And during the time of Stalin's rule, millions went to their death, not only through the collectivization, forced collectivization, I was speaking about before, but through political persecution, through purges, executions, and millions being sent to forced concentration camps. Amongst them, tens of thousands of Trotskyists, actually, into the camps like Forkuta, where they even went to their death singing the Internationale. So was it the Trotskyists specifically that Stalin was afraid of in these purges? Well, he was afraid of anybody and everybody and accused anybody that he thought might have a disagreement with him of being a Trotskyist, of being a traitor to the so-called socialist revolution and who needed to be eliminated. But, I mean, he must have been just terrified that workers would keep coming back to the idea that they should be in control. Mm. He said he was ruling in the name of the working class, but the working class weren't actually ruling and they didn't have control. And he was more and more terrified that he was going to face 
probably a political revolution from below against his regime and against this bloated and privileged bureaucracy. Now you talk about the bureaucracy being bloated and privileged in particular and certainly the top officials in the bureaucracy had extremely elevated lifestyles didn't they but they were not a capitalist class why is that? Well, they lived like the bourgeois or capitalist bosses and they treated workers in industry and on the land like serfs. And there were occasions when there were local uprisings, by the way, which were brutally put down. But no, they were not a capitalist class. Precisely, that's what Trotsky explained, particularly in this book, Revolution Betrayed. They ruled in the name of the working class, of Lenin, of communism, and all land and industry... And banking, actually, was still in state hands. So in that sense, it was by no means capitalist. Land, industry and banking was in state hands. And Stalin and his clique had carried through this political counter-revolution, but it remained to be seen, as Trotsky brilliantly put it in his book, Revolution Betrayed, whether the workers would be able to throw off the bureaucracy in a political revolution and establish democratic workers' control and management at work and in society, or, as he posed, you know, the two alternatives of what would happen. The bureaucracy would find a way of actually turning themselves into capitalists and carrying through a social counter-revolution that's eliminating the state-owned planned economy. So either the workers will cast out the bureaucrats in a political revolution or the bureaucrats will undo the social revolution and return to capitalism. But given what you've explained about the extreme privileges and the attitude of the top bureaucrats, notwithstanding the fact that the economy was planned, it was in state hands, a lot of listeners might still ask, well, but what's the difference between them and a capitalist then? Well, people were still very aware that a revolution had been carried through and that the land and industry was technically supposed to belong to them. But they could see, this is why Stalin was so afraid, because ordinary workers, they could see the way in which the managers were living and the bureaucrats in their limousines, you know, driving full speed along the big highways while they still lived in poverty. But they knew that the banks and the companies had not been taken over and taken into private hands. No one was actually making private profit out of them. That was clear within the country and outside the country, although some made a mistake of calling Russia state capitalist. That's another story. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that these bureaucrats didn't have individual control, that they weren't competing privately owned industries that in fact there was this central plan, everything was held collectively and they were, if you like, parasites sitting on top of this nationalised planned economies rather than individual parasites in competition with each other within a market economy. This was the fundamental difference and what was necessary was to boot these parasites off the economy rather than fundamentally change how the economy itself was organised at the bottom. Is that right? Yeah, if it could be done and if anybody felt that it could be done. But it really got to the stage where... People couldn't see any alternative. But this brings us on to what happened at the end, doesn't it? People couldn't see any alternative. And I understand that you were in Russia when the answer to Trotsky's either-or question, either the people will overthrow the bureaucrats in a political revolution or the bureaucrats will undo October with a social counter-revolution, the answer to that either-or question was given. There was an attempted general's coup in August 1991 when I was four, (laughs) and Boris Yeltsin effectively pushed Gorbachev to one side and proceeded on the road to capitalism. Is that right? 
Yes, I was living there, as I said at the beginning, exactly at the time when some generals tried to carry through a coup and Boris Yeltsin, who was already a popular so-called Democrat, stood on a tank and proved that he had the people with him. The coup was defeated. Really, the forces of the state came over to the side of Yeltsin. It was a sort of mini-revolutionary situation, but it was clear then that there was no going back, that there wouldn't be a political revolution of the workers, and there would be the what they called perichod krinku, the transition to the market, would go ahead. But before that, when we'd first gone to Russia, you know, on behalf of the CWI, we hadn't been able to go before, as Trotskyists, who still weren't allowed, and we thought we were being followed still in the late 80s, we were hoping that we would find workers who did think they could take action, they could take things back into their control, they could set up committees and uh, carry through the political revolution, you know, or retake control in society. But we were disappointed. I mean, I can tell you about a situation when there was an MP in Liverpool called Terry Fields, who was actually part of the militant, and he went to visit the striking miners in the Kuzbas in Russia, right at the end of the 80s. And he could sense that they knew they had power to put their stamp on the situation and they were getting you know quite excited about it that they could throw off this bureaucracy but he said you know you have to be careful you really need to oppose capitalism because what you'll get is not the kind of capitalism from Sweden or even America or Europe you would get a Latin American type of capitalism which means mass inflation that would affect the whole of society, you would get mass unemployment and dictatorship. And they couldn't believe what he was saying. I mean, he had this idea because he had discussed, or we had all discussed what the perspectives were before he went on this particular visit. And then it was actually carried out exactly as we had imagined the transition to the market when it was pushed through by a policy called shock therapy actually they were quite <laughs> blatant about it in fact not only had they got hyperinflation and mass unemployment a collapse in the economy by 50 percent but within two years of Yeltsin standing on the tank and looking like the super democrat he was sending tanks against his own parliament in Moscow and he actually established a dictatorship while this rapid transition to capitalism was taking place. Within a matter of a couple of years, it happened. So why is it that Russia couldn't simply transition to a liberal capitalist democracy like in the advanced capitalist countries? Well, there's a whole different historical period and historical process. And the people like Yeltsin and his kind of supporters and the economists that were around him advising on the need for capitalism were absolute devotees of Friedman and the neoliberal school. They were known as the boys in pink trousers, actually, from the Chicago <laughs> school. I don't know why the pink trousers. And they were determined to just push through. They were in leading positions in the party, which meant leading positions in society, and they could just literally rob the people of the factories. There was a special a sort of trick, it was a money trick, where vouchers were issued to every single worker to have a little share in their workplace, in their factory or their enterprise. But 
things were getting so bad that workers were actually selling these vouchers to old grannies at the tube station who were accumulating them and handing them over because they were paid a little bit of money and handing them over to these bureaucrats who amassed them for themselves and became the owners of these industries. We had a small paper then called Workers' Democracy. We were still a small voice, you know, crying out. In Russia? For, yes, in, in Russia for workers to resist this process, but it was a massive tide coming against them. But we said voucherization was robbery. It was robbery of the workers. They already owned industry through the state, technically. Mm. They just didn't control it. So that was pushed through, and these sort of party leaders became oligarchs. They became owners of banks, owners of oil enterprises and big factories. And actually it was gangster capitalism because even when I was living there, there were bodies in the streets, you know, people were getting shot at. It was like the Wild West in some respects, except there were cars instead of horses. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, there was literally blood on the streets of this Razbjorka. It was a real set too. And you know that today Russia is dominated by just a few very, very rich oligarchs, with Putin as the richest amongst them. So they've got a lot to defend now. And these oligarchs, of course, had individual control over entire workplaces and sections of industry in a way which they couldn't have exercised under the bureaucracy, notwithstanding the privileges which the tops of the officialdom had. They suddenly had direct ownership of it and could dispose of them more or less as they pleased and become extraordinarily rich and all the inefficiencies of market competition were reintroduced. Is that right? Yes, and they didn't have to pay lip service to the Communist Party. I mean, the Communist Party was dissolved and they established their own parties which were supposed to lead to a more democratic situation in the Parliament, but they didn't. It was clearer than really in Britain or anywhere else that they were directly pushing the interests of profit, you know, in their firms through their parties, through the ruling party, actually. And the result for the workers was not just this gangster capitalism, but also that full employment went out the window, so you could be sacked at will. So you got, as you say, this mass unemployment, but presumably also issues like housing and public services, which despite all the massive inefficiencies of the bureaucracy, were at least guaranteed under Stalinism. These were no longer guaranteed, and that's the case in Russia now. It is. It is the case. And people were distraught, they were angry, but they really felt helpless. They didn't know what they could do. They'd had no organisations helping them to resist or we hadn't been there early enough to explain what needed to be done, although even then we'd have been swimming against the stream. But they lost totally free education, hospitals, medicine, the pensions have been attacked as well, homes... Many of them have been privatised and many have become unaffordable. And actually, alcoholism increased dramatically. Life expectancy declined dramatically in that period. I mean, it wasn't only in Russia that the economy declined by 50%, but in places like Georgia, in all of the republics that split away, became so-called independent but capitalist countries, there were similar catastrophes in the economy and similar kind of robbery of the assets in society by a tiny clique at the top. So this was a consequence on the one hand of the workers having absolutely no control, unfortunately, because of the lack of organisation, among other things, over this process, but also because, as you put it, the historical juncture which capitalism was in around the world, neoliberal ideas and trends had come to the fore 
as a result, really, of the end of the post-war boom after 1945 up through to the 60s. That period was over, and so capitalism, in order to expand its profits, was putting through particularly extreme policies, which we now know as neoliberalism, and which have continued since then. And in fact, the end of the Soviet Union meant that there was no ideological or social counterweight of any kind in the world to those extreme neoliberal capitalist policies and that's what we've had to deal with ever since which brings us up to today and our final question because as we're recording this there are mass protests on the streets of belarus for example so our final question is how relevant are trotsky's writings on stalinism to the world today and in particular to those who still want to end the rule of capital and the capitalists well i think it's very important for today's generation of fighters who want to get rid of capitalism or want a different society, that they understand that the collapse of Stalinism did not mean the collapse of socialism. It was not socialism because many were saying, well, that's the end, well, not the end of history, or that's the end of any ideas that you can build a fairer and more just society on the basis of state ownership, of planning, and so on. But if we explain and if we understand in the way that Trotsky explained it, what it was and what it wasn't that existed in the Soviet Union and why actually it even kept expanding the economy in the period after the Second World War for other historical reasons, which I haven't got time to go into here. But if we know what it was that collapsed at the beginning of the 1990s, that it wasn't socialism and the idea of planned economies benefiting the mass of the working class, of the working people, then we know that it's yet to fight for, that we can, on the basis of a much more developed economy in most countries of the world, that there's a chance of actually carrying through a revolution. You mentioned Belarus, Belarusia. Unfortunately, there is no party there, there's no leadership who have drawn the lessons that it wasn't socialism that collapsed, and Stalinism is responsible for all the problems or many of the problems that have persisted. But there's a, a move there of the mass of the population who feel that they've got victory within their grasp to get rid of a dictator, what they call the last dictator in Europe, who's really been there since the time of the collapse of Stalinism, and where actually quite a lot of the economy is still state-owned. But you feel that their fear has gone, there's a festival feeling, there's strikes, and really what's developing into a general strike. The mass media, the reporters, are not prepared to, to just do the bidding of Lukashenko, who was still giving figures for agricultural production in the middle of this crisis from the media, <laughs> just like the old kind of Brezhnev days. But that's happening in Belarus. There's a movement within Russia itself. Putin is not strong. There's a movement in Khabarovsk, in the far east of Russia, with very mixed, confused ideas supporting so-called liberal Democrats who are neither liberal nor democratic, very nationalistic. Um, but Putin must be feeling the ground moving beneath his feet. And it's just the time, really, when the ideas of Trotsky need to come back into their own. We, the CWI, was actually... We were the first to publish revolution betrayed in Russian, in Russia. We produced it, we got it printed, we got it taken down to Moscow in a train, kind of illicitly, <laughs> and the rest is history to a certain extent, but it has been widely distributed and hopefully it's being widely read and all the lessons are being mulled over and understood by a new generation. As always, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends and donate to help fund us. And if you agree, join the socialists. Claire, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Claire Doyle, and I'm Sarah Saxeldridge. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The CWI is producing a new book on Trotsky's life and ideas for the 80th anniversary of his assassination, which this podcast series is following. It's called Leon Trotsky, a revolutionary whose ideas couldn't be killed. You can pre-order it now at leftbooks.co.uk. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make regular donations or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.